Welcome to the Mother Loving Future Show, hosted by Amber Strange and Jenna Penrose, two mothers and detectives dedicated to fully embodying a new paradigm of conscious parenting, deeper relationships, healing ourselves into radiant health, and epic answers to age-old enigmas. Get ready to get your mind blown, because this week's episode starts in Three, two, one. And it's 11.11 on the dot. Welcome to the Mother Loving Future Show where your hosts, Amber and Jenna. And today we are discussing saving the world through storytelling with John Morrow. Welcome, John. We are so happy to have you on today. I am so happy to be here. Yay! John is a very good friend of mine. He has been in the community, the Cafe Gratitude community for a very long time, friends with the family, friends with all the incredible, beautiful, creative souls out there that I know. And um, you are up to some pretty incredible stuff, John. I mean, really the most profound artist I personally know. And um, yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure and delight to have you on and to pick your brain about all the all the good things in the world, like storytelling. I was thinking how interesting it is to be a visual artist who's on a podcast. You know, having to having to be able to speak words as image. And I'm always a uh, I'm as a storyteller. That's something I'm learning how to do: the power and the poetic and almost the pigment of words. Mm, beautiful, the that's- pigment of words. Love that. Yeah, do you know? Do you have you you two goddesses? Have you ever read uh, the book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess? No. Okay. We need so, to. Yeah, there's this amazing book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, um, and it it really speaks to um, the power. You know, you've heard that phrase that an image speaks a thousand words, mm-hmm. and so this notion that if you um, saw a picture of a tree, for instance, um, it's inherently feminine, inherently holistic and relational. So if you saw this tree, a picture, an image of it, you would also see um, its relationship to the sky, its relationship to the earth, you know, the the world or the landscape behind it. So there's this holism that's there in image versus if you had to describe the tree, you might say it's a pine tree. You might say it has needles. You might say it has leaves. You might say it's, you know, in foliage, it's barren. You, ha- you have to uh, speak so many more words and so much more effort to chisel that into existence rather than just the inherent immediacy of a, of a photograph. And so um, they were talking about how like in ancient, in, in Egypt, for instance, they used hieroglyphs as their language, pictures, a pictorial language, and how this is an instant communication that can speak across any kind of um, language. And I've also, I've also thought about um, these universal icons. So if you go to an airport, you know, like hey, there's the taxi, there's the restroom, you know, there's the baggage claim. That image, those are there throughout international borders and can speak to anyone uh, through the simplicity of a, of, a, of a picture, of an icon. And so the point of this book is, I mean, there's many points in it, but how feminine cultures would often use image more than word and words nouns, for instance, inherently create separation 
and it's a masculine form. It's like a it's like a map drawing or a line drawing, right? It's saying, well, this is this is a bottle, and that is the table, and this is the floor. It's separate. It creates like a, a dualism, no matter what. Where um, this language of the feminine shows relationships always. That it's that that this bottle, yes, it's a bottle, but it also holds the water, you know, which is sitting upon this table, which is sitting upon the earth. You know, it speaks of um, the beautiful connectiveness in all things. Mm. That's wow. very, very well said and an interesting concept that I had not heard before. Beautiful insight. And I love the fact that it's left up to one's own interpretation. And as one interprets something and speaks it and shares the ideas, it's a form of therapy, I think. So that's, um, yeah, not, a really beautiful way. Not just therapy for the expressor, the person that's expressing it, but can be cathartic therapy for those who are, you know, witnessing the expression. For sure. I was also just seeing, you know, so Instagram, for instance, we all have uh, in this day and age. And uh, there's a there's an account, there's a lots of accounts that I follow, but one one that I follow called I think it's just called Historic, and it has all these images from you know from sort of from the recording from the recording images, and a lot of them in the civil rights movement, for instance, will come up and they would they would line the front pages uh when things were happening and it would or or wars or things and at the time they would be both horrific but also spread such compassion and people were drawn into action for seeing that's not right you know we can get lost in this information sort of constantly solicited for our attention and i and i think too with advertising and whatnot we're flooded with imagery too. I'm not saying images is, is sort of untainted or uncorrupted in that, but the power of an image and think about these iconic, um, you know, that, that image of um, the man, the students uh, standing in front of the tank, you know, um, in Tiananmen square, just a power, like the power of resistance and how much an image can hold. I'm fascinated by this. And this has always been the power of art and image making to communicate, you know, to communicate to the heart. Absolutely. And to be honest, I think that, artists have a responsibility to be aware of the profound effect subconsciously and consciously art has on the masses and really have some intention behind what they put out there. And hopefully it's for the good of the earth and to inspire and educate in the right ways, which is why we're what we're talking about today. I completely yeah. agree with that, but I have come across so many artists who do actually don't feel that way. They actually feel that's a that's a de, like departs from from true art, where art is just just expression without thinking of how it affects people. But I I agree. I think the artist has such a important role in society to to lead us in a direction which is helpful and not destructive. Yeah, I think um, you know artists are inherently creative. And I think, you know, with that, the the utmost responsibility would be to be responsible for the world we help create. You know, mm-hmm. and and the the world that, you know, there's um, the future hasn't happened yet. This is the mother loving future, and the mm-hmm. and the future the future hasn't happened yet. But we are creating it with every word, with every action, with every um, new day, with every act of generosity or kindness or destruction or unconsciousness, and so. You know, for me, people ask, what's your favorite medium? You know, and I work in a lot of different mediums, but certainly like consciousness or spirit would be my favorite medium mm. to work with. That's that's actually where I'm drawing from because it it's what 
you know, literally inspiration comes from spirit. So I've surrendered, I've, I've learned, you know, I've had to learn how to, um, listen to that and begin to almost see from an inner eye or the third eye or the heart's eye as a way to inform uh, the images I want to make. And I do think too that, yes, it's a form of therapy, but if you're just getting out, if you're just venting, if you're just vomiting gnarly, you know, resentment or hurt, then that that's going to also affect the world. And I, and I think there's a time and place for that. And maybe it's within the, the sort of, uh, closed bookends of your own, you know, personal notebook or journaling in the same way someone might journal or write, you know, in their diary or wherever to get out just the venom, get the poison out of themselves. There might be artwork that may never be seen for the world and it may not be intended for the world. Or if it is, to be able to kind of give that context to the hurt rather than just, um, mm-hmm. you know, S- spreading I, it out on people. Yeah, there's a lot of people who do shock art for shock art's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, let me just see if I can get someone's attention. Let me just see if I can provoke a reaction out of someone. And you know, ultimately, people are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, but I've 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 chosen for better or worse just to see. There's just it's so much more wholly satisfying to follow um, where inspiration takes me. I completely I- agree with that. I have one question on that, actually, which is the the fact that if you look at the art that's sort of made in the world or promoted in mainstream culture, a lot of the times it's, it is more shocking. It's less socially conscious. And I've found just from socially co- conscious artists that I've known personally, it's sort of like if you're out there, you know, speaking the truth of love, sometimes that you, you're not getting picked up by the mainstream. And so do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's great. Um, well, two things. So one, you know, I just saw, I, 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 a thousand percent, this is, this is a complete 1000% judgment, uh, that I am not a fan of like the duct tape banana on a wall being a $2 million piece of art. I'm just not, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, how, I'm not, how could it? um, I, there's an amazing film. It's online. You can find it. It's on the, it was on the BBC, which is like the, the British sort of version of, uh, you know, PBS, uh, called why beauty matters. And it's phenomenal. It talks about music and art and architecture, and the purpose that it that it has, and the meaning in the in the uh, you know the calling of art really, and how it can call people forward. And so that's what I would really recommend watching is why beauty matters. And it's more that's what art is capable of its highest to lift us to other realms, to the spiritual realms, to the imaginal realms, which I'd love to love to talk about more. And then the other thing I would say too, around this podcast is where I've, how I've had to ultimately deal with that is to consider myself less an artist and more a storyteller because you know, you're right. Like as an artist, I'm, if you, if someone thinks of me just as an artist, they're looking for just the images or the pictures I make. And I'm just contributing, like, put this up on a gallery, put this up on an Instagram feed, which gets lost by tomorrow, you know, buried in the rest of the feed. And so I've had to struggle with how do I get noticed in this world of in these, this unending waterfall of cascading with information. And so I've sort of sought out the timeless and storytelling and mythology and archetypes seem to be things that are, that are still here and still resonating and still just as strong as ever. And what other people ultimately retreat to and look for when they're overwhelmed or drowning or, you know, swallowed up by that cascade. Mm, totally. Wow. That's good. so beautiful. I really love that. Before we get 
too far into it. Should should we discuss John's bio? Because you are very remarkable, John. <laughs> From the years I've known you, I've always known you to be involved in such incredible studies and participating in incredible um, acts of activism and very deep into the spiritual teachings and realms. And let's let's hear a little bit more about John in terms of his work around storytelling. Jenna, do you have his bio there? I do. So John Morrow is an award-winning artist, author, philosopher, entrepreneur, filmmaker, and mystic who writes and illustrates colorful stories for the creative child within each of us. He weaves whimsical words with love, respect, and reverence and invites us to play and participate within them. John has collaborated and infused his intrepid sense of color with such clients as Jason Mraz, Dave Matthews, Maroon 5, Madonna, Tom's Shoes, Whole Foods Market, MTV, CBS, and even His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And John currently creates and communes in Southern California with a community of big-hearted, soulful artists and activists committed to changing the world by changing themselves. I mean, there's just so much there I want to know about. Like, I want to know about the Dalai Lama and like Maroon 5 and Madonna. It's just like, I, I'm sure there's so many stories. And for anyone who's a Cafe Grat- Gratitude fan here in Los Angeles, you may not know, but you already know and have connected to John every time you use the bathroom. <laughs> he is the brilliant artist behind all those beautiful murals and positive affirmations on the bathroom wall and on the mirror there. Every time I go in there, doing my business, I'm like, hey, John, how are you doing? Wow, I'm just sitting here and there's so much intricacy in that beautiful mural that's in that bathroom. I just want to, I blame you for the queue being so long for the bathroom. People just spend 20 minutes in there, like fawning over your art. Which, which cafe gratitude is that one? Larchmont. Uh, Larchmont. Okay. The Larchmont one. Okay. And And don't you have, you have a work in the Venice one too. Yeah, there's another work in the Venice. On the it's somehow the the bathrooms and I are connected. So on the <laughs> wall, on the wall, right before the hallway to the bathroom, there's a mural there, uh, right behind the right by the community table, and it's a yeah. uh, it's a big it's a heart with wings and the feathers are hands kind of reaching out. So it's a it's a it's a piece about community. Beautiful, mm, I love oh. that one. All right, are you going to answer Jenna's question? <laughs> well, there's so many in there. <laughs> about, so yeah. Get uh, where should I start? Well, about okay, let me ask you a specific question. So, in your bio, it says you inf- infused your intrepid sense of color with um, people like Jason Mraz, Dave Matthews, Maroon Five, and Madonna. Like, how did you? I am obsessed with color as well. I identify as a tetrachromat with synesthesia, so there's a lot of color happening in my worldview. So I'm just curious about yours and like how does this color infuse into these amazing projects with these people. All right. Thank you. Um, I believe color is an element, you know, like, a, like air or fire or water. It's a, it has its own realm and world and laws of physics. And it's always spoke to me. And it's always been something where uh, as a form of expression, both through fashion and artwork and as a, as a means, I think that, you know, I believe so I grew up in Vermont, and uh, Vermont uh, has some of the best foliage in the world, um, and it comes alive again. Nature comes alive as it's even dying. It sort of gives this last beautiful, um, becomes brighter as it's dying, which is sort of a weird, beautiful paradox. And I think that nature, and certainly 
Cafe Gratitude, where we're dealing with health and wellness and vitality, the colors of food, that's a, that's what brought me into this community as well. So there's a natural vitality and aliveness that I associate with color. And I think nature picks it for a reason. And so, um, you know, when I, I, I went to art school and I almost, here's this ironic little art school story where I almost didn't graduate high school because I didn't have enough art credit, which is sort of this hilarious irony, but I ended up taking an independent study with a, um, a local, a local artist who, uh, basically did nature drawing. We'd go out into walks into the nature and draw, um, you know, landscapes and things and watching her use pastels, um, and she was a folk artist. So the way folk artists tend to use color specifically as to represent like a mountain or a, or a rolling meadow, I just got fascinated by that and could, could sort of simplify nature into just its simplest shapes and colors. So that was really formative in my years. And when I applied to art school, um, I the dean of admissions wrote me a hand like personal note and said, we have never seen a high school student with such a colorful bravado as yours, as your portfolio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we hope you'll consider us if you have any questions, reach out. And that was just something that almost an acknowledgement of like, you've got a special thing here and it's tied to color. So I've always just pushed it. And it's been my, more than any medium, more than paint or colored pencils or anything, color has been something. And I think that's actually if people were to, you know, say what is most unique about his work, I think there's two things. One, it's I, I I dive into so many different styles. I can go photorealistic. I can go like pop, you know, iconic. I can go folk arts and um, intricate line work. But color is always the sort of marked thing where mm-hmm. I really like. You'll never really see me do. I mean, I can, but you'll never really see me do just grays and drabs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not because I don't um, uh, resonate with them, but there's something about aliveness and how how color informs it. So I think that uh, when working with clients, um, I see their colors. You know, I see the colors in their songs. If they're a musician, I see the colors and vitality of their food. If they're a cafe, I see their spirit. If they're a if they're a spiritual teacher, you know, um, and that's a that's just a way that I translate what I see onto the onto the page, the canvas, the screen. Wow. So if you're working with a musical artist, um, and how do you, how do you interpret their color into, uh, how do you basically collaborate with them and under, on what kind of project, for example? Yeah. So I, I, I majored in illustration and as an illustrator, you, we were taught to translate text into image. So it was kind of that, um, alphabet for the goddess thing where like, okay, here's some text. What does this look like image wise? How can I, how can I make this speak without using words. Um, and for musicians specifically, uh, lyrics do that. You know, lyrics are poetry. They're, they're, they're prose. They're, they fill my mind with imagery that I get to illustrate and translate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've, the music industry in and of itself is, is, uh, anybody who's sort of worked in it, it's a bit incestuous. It's a bit, it's a bit, it's, um, everyone knows everyone in there, you know, one, it's very, it's very interconnected. And so, um, I started working with, um, I, I got my start, uh, I sort of taught myself graphic design and would do, uh, flyers, show flyers for friends of my mm. bands or my brother's bands. Um, and then I, uh, how I connected to Jason Mraz first was, 
I just found Adam at about the kind of tail end of the Napster days, really, you know, and downloading some of his music. I loved it. He still, he wasn't touring. He didn't have a record out yet, uh, but fell in love with his music and he still had his email address on his website. So I just mm-hmm. put some designs together, um, sent it to him and we started in like an email correspondence, sort of like we became pen pals first, really. And then uh, he toured. I went to and went and saw him at a show. We met and became instant friends. And I And then his album came out and it kind of took off and I got to, sort of take off with him and, and become his, you know, merchandise designer and um, album designer. And then that, you know, people saw that and the same people who were, who were um, doing his merchandise just happened to be doing uh, Madonna's and my oh, designs wow. were selling really well. So they reached out and I got to, um, I got to do some things for her, uh, a couple of wow. surreal pieces. The one of the, here's a, here's a very weird story where. Love weird stories. The very, the, the second thing I did for her was, it was just a. It was a portrait of her, and they wanted it on the back of a uh, a sweatshirt. So it was a very pretty racy, you know, uh, wet t shirt uh, photo of her. And so I, what I had to do was actually like retouch and edit out her nipples for this thing. That was like part of this project. <laughs> Madonna's. Why nipples. would you do so that? It's it's Madonna's they, calling card. That's <laughs> what I thought. But that was like an okay. I was like, it was a moment of a, this is a my life is taking me to some weird places. I'm actually being asked to sort of Photoshop out Madonna's actual nipples. Okay, here we go. I'm in merchandise designer. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yeah. the LA, um, the but, LA story. Totally. Totally, totally. So yeah, so you know, um, and then Jason at the time was touring with Maroon Five, and so I did some things for them. And um, you know, I think also too, when I say color, there is the actual physical pigment, but but you know, that spirituality we're talking about. Uh, there's a cleverness. I'm, all of my work always seems to have more than one word, like m- more than one world represented. It's always got an aha, a deeper meaning. And most of my clients. Um, we're also, you know, seekers on the path and also looking for uh, change and transformation and going deeper. So that's another reason why a lot of people um, would come to me and use my work to uh, express their ideas, not so just topical and surface level, but also the breadth and the depth of what they offer. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I, I was just going to say on, on his website, I was looking at some of your work and how you really have these very simple images, but they are really so deep. And it's just incredible how you could like walk that line. Thank you. Thank you. And I was about to say your your book that we're going to be discussing today, Holden Hugs the World, there are such beautifully deep and profound Um, topics woven in very subtly. And there's such relevant themes such as equality. You've also got, you're touching upon the environment and then the whole life beyond earth theme. I mean, I read this book, Holden Hugs the World, and through the imagery and through these words you've chosen, I'm asking myself such huge questions and it's delivered in such a light kind of easy flowing way that I can imagine it leaves little kids asking the big questions to their parents and also seeing things in different way. And and also stimulating their own inner knowing about the, you know, the love that's inside them and wanting to share that. Yeah. I think if I ever had a, at a, um, 
you know, like an educational outreach um, around children, it would be something like seers sooner, <laughs> you know, how to, how to create seers sooner, how to create mystics sooner, you know, and, and speak to that part uh, in the child, you know, as from a, from an early age, you know, watching them. So it's not just, and again, nothing against SpongeBob or anything like that. I'm <laughs> sure there's, I'm sure there's profound, like truly profound metaphors there, but yeah, to begin to ask those questions now, because I think they are timeless and ageless and therefore they can resonate. I'm really interested in that is, is there a way that if parents are the ones going to be reading to kids, you know, before they read, can this be having a profound effect on the child and the adult? You know, that's, that's, you get more bang for the buck right there. And, and that's how entertainment used to be. I mean, my grandma tells me back in the day, it's like they would have the same books, the same movies, the same music for people of all ages. And that was so unifying, you know, that they could share in that art together. And now we have this art, you know, like we have the rap music for the rap fans and we have the pop music. We have all these different sort of like different art for different groups of people. And, and to have that simple, um, timeless, themes, which can really be applicable to all ages is really unifying. Yeah. There's a, they were saying for children's books too, that, um, there hasn't been that most of the bestsellers for children's books are still the timeless ones, like the giving tree, uh, a lot of the Shel Silversteins or Dr. Seuss, um, Harold and the purple crayon. There's these, there's, there's these stories that actually are speaking to something deeper and year after year, perennially, they're the best sellers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did that idea inspire Holden Hugs the World? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book or why don't we just read the book? Yeah, I, I want to hear it. it. I'm ready we'll to hear it. it. Okay, great. I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah. And then you can ask me questions after. Right. So here's the dedication. To every child that is, was, and will be, this story was written for your heart from me. Let us be sisters and let us be brothers. Let us be Holden to each of each other. Holden hugs the world. There once was a being whose soul was quite golden. He loved hugging so much that his mom named him Holden. Holden held tight to his known universe until one day on Earth, things began to get worse. When Earth needed help, it called out for some love. So Holden went down and gave Earth a hug. He hugged colorful birds and deep-rooted trees. He hugged snow-covered mountains and hard-working bees. He hugged the crookedest rivers and calm, quiet lakes. He hugged all the elephants and even the snakes. He hugged a lost polar bear and the fast-melting ice. He hugged the ocean waves once and the sea creatures twice. He gave hugs for a moment and hugs that would last, but before he hugged anyone, Holden made sure to ask. He hugged people of all faiths, all colors and ages. He hugged people who earned all sorts of wages. He hugged those who were different and those quite the same, the one-of-a-kind snowflake and each drop of rain. He hugged the lives that were new and those that were long. Holden's hugs felt like the music to the sweetest of songs. He hugged those who tried hard to give it their best, and he hugged those who needed to lie down and rest. Holden hugged people's prayers, and he hugged people's thoughts. He hugged the food that they grew and the things that they bought. Holden hugged through pollution, violence, and hate. He hugged the whole world before it was too late. Now that Holden had held each and everything nearer, the purpose for living on earth became clearer. 
He spread lots of love across this planet of ours, then looked up to see a new friend in the stars. The two hugged each other as they giggled with glee. I'm holding you, and you're holding me. So good. So good. Spiritual clap. I mean, not only is it just so rife with meaning and just brilliance and like all the little metaphors and how you said things like the the snowflake and each drop of rain, but also as a mom who reads books to kids like all the time, I love the cadence, you know, just like the rhyme scheme and the rhythm. It's like, that's what I want to be reading to my kids is a book about that long with like that kind of cadence and rhythm and meaning. It's just fun to read, you know? And you should see the visuals. They are so beautiful and just perfect, simple, but profound, colorful, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we can put a, we can put a link to the book in the, in the show notes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We it's, definitely it's will. It's happening. Perfect. So, John, <laughs> I want to know what inspired you to write this book. Um, great question. I think that for me, you know, I'm not a parent yet, uh, but I have been thinking about what would I tell my child in these times? What do they need to hear? What do I need to hear? What does my own inner child need to hear? And there's a reassurance that I was looking for um, and connection and compassion. And it feels like the antidote to whatever's happening now. And um, the book really came, it was one of those ones, this one specifically, it came through in one of those one fell magical swoops. Like I wrote it, in about 15 minutes. And I would say that original version probably was like 85 to 90% of what it actually is now. I did make some tweaks and change some things, but it was mostly all there. It came through in one fell swoop. So there wasn't a specific um, you know, circumstance or like instance that happened as much as just sitting with the, sitting with the state of the world. And as an activist, um, I've turned more and more to my art as a way to um, I don't want to say combat it, but as a as a as a different as a as a this can be otherwise. Here's something else, uh, other than this, and as a way to um, create a new world and a new a new um, language and a visual language to to stand upon and reference. That makes a lot of sense, and I love I love just like how spirit just comes through you in in these bursts of brilliance. It's it's really quite a talent. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in this thing, you know, so do you guys know about, uh, imaginal cells? No, tell us. Uh, okay. I can't wait. Okay. So there's this real, it's, these are real, they're called imaginal cells and imaginal cells, um, are the first cells or the first imaginal cells, the first cell in the butterfly. It's the first cell that becomes the butterfly in the chrysalis when a, when a caterpillar goes in there. And so it's this, it's like a mystical cell it comes out of nowhere. It's a magic scientist still do not know where it came from. It has no like DNA or connection to the caterpillar. There's nothing about this cell that would even have any connection to this sluggish, you know, dopey, dumpy caterpillar that's one thing around. It's a full on like butterfly cell. And what happens is something catalyzes it when it goes, when the caterpillar spins its little uh, cocoon, it goes in there and then the cell shows up. But this foreign cell uh, look, is looked at as like an enemy or like a, uh, you know, a, 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 
yeah, and, and, and like a like a, a foreign cell to these to these to the caterpillar cells, and they think it, they have to attack it. They're like saying, "Oh, this is a this is a, a danger. Let's attack it." And so there's this whole riot that's going on. But this imaginal cell is so clear and so resolved in its vision and so inspiring that it actually gets the others to sort of join on board. It basically says, like, listen, guys, if we put our heads if we put our heads together, we can fly this thing, you know, basically. So um and but there's this whole war that's going on inside of the caterpillar. It's dissolving and so um, you know, there's these cells that have that have transformed. Other ones are trying to take them down. Another cluster of imaginal cells will form over there until this uh, until it basically dissolves itself until it's like this living goo that reconstructs itself into the butterfly. But that's kind of what happens. So Whoa. Wow. Incredible. And scientists have even put up a microphone to chrysalis and there's a full on screaming that's going on really it's yeah it's like a shrill dying what's what's happening and you know that's i i I would have to say at some level you know we're going to be we're gonna have to sort of know that realm and know that transformation or no no birth right and so this imaginal realm is what i would call that realm um where the muses come from, where they, where they find, you know, where they find inspiration, where stories come through. There's this great quote that I read that was talking about Shakespeare, for instance. And it said, you know, did Shakespeare create Othello or did Othello create Shakespeare? You know, which, which realm is more real, you know, who's writing who, right? And, um, you know, from, from these, whether it's the realm of ancestors or spirits or chakras, there's this place that's, it's like the where the invisible realms uh, that we can't quite see, and I've I've thought about it in in a lot of scientific terms. Where, so this is real science, where a snail or a slug, okay, they can only see or they have their moments of perception are basically uh, like five seconds to one of our moments of perception. So if you were to walk by a snail or a slug, um, in less than, you know in quicker than five seconds, which usually happens. It was as if you never walked by to that snail or slug. It just didn't happen because it, it happened quicker than their moments of perception. Mm-hmm. So then I go like, what's going on in between our moments of oh, perception? Yeah. Lots, you know, like lots, lots, lots. We think we're like going around here going like, oh, we got it. I'm, I'm living at one and one time with like one to one moment with reality. No, you know, there's whole other, there's whole other things happening. And so rather than think of it as some distant place out there, I like to think of it as like where two oceans meet. You know, there isn't really a boundary, but it's if you if we can connect to those subtler realms, things happen. And I think that's actually uh, what transformation is. Like there are marked moments in our life that are instant transformation that will never be the same. Becoming a mother, you know, getting married, meeting the love of our life. There are mom- these peak moments in our lives for sure. But if you look at them over time, there's this subtle, profound change that happens almost imperceptibly. And if we look back, it's like, wow, I don't know what happened, but I know something happened because I'm different. And whatever that is, I am, I am a student of that for life. And then your entire outer world changes. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. 
Exactly. I mean, the butterfly metaphor that you had used before is such a good like way to illustrate it too, because it's like, you know, it's such it's a metaphor for spiritual transformation or personal evolution or growth, where you know the internal battle of you know getting that inspiration from those subtle worlds, and then the fight between the linear mind and the and the heart to to bring that to reality, and then the feeling of death, the feeling of the death of your old self, and and bringing in this newness and. And um, how it comes from those those ethers. It's just, yeah, it's a good metaphor. Well, I, I think you know you guys are, are working on a book right now. Am I allowed to say that on, on the air? You're working on a book. Is that public knowledge? Yeah, it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That's totally great. Okay, great. So whether you're working on a book or a baby, where do they both right. come from? You know, yeah. Like where there's something that does not exist, and then it comes into existence. That fascinates me. And I don't know what that is, but the only way that I found to be able to connect with that is through creation. You know, creation seems to be a, a connective tissue between that. And so these realms, and I do believe ideas are entities. You know, they speak to you, they they help form you, they shape you, and they'll take you on a journey with them. And uh, so I've made my life about learning how to listen and staying connected to that realm. And a lot of the work I do with clients is getting them back connected to that, right? Their source of inspiration, their calling, and then making sure their visual collateral is consistent with that. Because when they're connected, they'll connect to not only their audience, but the heart of their audience and, and their audience is calling. So my personal calling is people live connected and that's connected to each other. It's connected to the muse, to the realms, to God, to spirit, to the earth, all of that. And so, you know, when, when you make a declaration like that, you clearly see all the ways that I and others are disconnected, but what a beautiful like task that I've sort of granted myself is how do I stay connected to not, you know, and, and my personal spiritual journey has uh, evened me out or come, you know, I'm coming more and more obviously in refinement and balance, but I went deep into some spiritual dives, trying to only live in that world, thinking that was the only world there was of muses, of angels, of, of, uh, you know, masters, enlightenment, nirvana, that kind of place that was sort of such this quest. But now I've kind of found like this right here, right now, this is the work I need to be doing, you know, and that any, any sort of there or other is always accessed through the here and now. Like our life, this world, this realm is an active portal to any other place. And all I have to do is ground myself and connect and walk through that. And do you feel like you're at a place where you you feel connected all the time? Like, are you in constant connection or do you still have moments at this point of feeling disconnected ever? Oh, for sure. I'm all, you know, it's always a remember, forget, remember, forget. Mm -hmm. But I'm more in a place right now where my life itself becomes the path, the practice, and the teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I've done my spiritual, you know, meditation practices and disciplines where um, I'll just catch myself, whether I'm washing dishes or driving or in a moment of just, okay, what am I doing right now? I'm freaking out. I'm impatient. I'm, I'm, I've lost the plot. So just bringing, coming back to, laughing at myself and taking a breath or, um, yeah, grounding down. It's, you know, but for sure, a thousand percent, I, 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 I probably lose more than I succeed. And that's, but, but in that quote unquote loss is another opportunity to return. 
again and again. And so totally. and teaches, well teaches more, more humility, you know, constantly. Oh, earth school. Yeah. Yeah. I know you also wrote another book called mm-hmm. Keepers of Color, correct? Yep. Yep. And so what's, what's, tell us a little bit about that book and about the story being told there. Sure. Thank you. So the Keepers of Color is a it's definitely for the inner child. I'm still actually learning what this book is, to be honest. Uh, my friend Irene always says this thing where you think you're doing one thing, but you're doing something else, <laughs> you know? And, um, but this book was a way, it was my own process of coming out of a, uh, I would say a darker or more intense time in my life, uh, to reconnect with my playfulness and, um, literal sense of color. And so I thought for a while that my first child, I would name them color. And um, if I ever had a child, but instead I named the main character of this book, color, who's a a little like shamanic Sherpa, a little colorful <laughs> guide who is your cheerleader, you know, in this spiritual practice, in the earth school and guides you through your own inner world to be able to connect to that imaginal realm within you. I believe everyone has that. And there's a lot of people who say, I'm not an artist. I'm not creative. I just don't believe that. I believe that, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you're a mother, an accountant, a lawyer, a scientist, it's all inherently creativity because Mm -hmm. we are the, the realm the medium is creation. You know, we're all in a ever ongoing creation. You can never not be creating. And so, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to have this little colorful character walk you through your own psychology, you know, and that's, that's tough because when people hear hero's journey, when they hear spiritual journey, when they hear psychology, they can kind of put their arms up, but this is a kindergarten way to kind of have you see what your inner landscape is made of. And um, so color goes along, this little character color takes you along and you meet these archetypal characters who are the, called the keepers. And they're just here to, to uphold and overlook that realm. And there's the, the kind of bad guy in the book is called the gray area. It's that place of nebulous <laughs> confusion and doubt and apathy. You know, it's like, I don't know. I yeah. can't find my inspiration. It's, and uh, that, that was, again, my way of dealing with, you know, Trump getting elected or like another wildfire happening. And I'm like, how? Mm. I don't understand what to do, uh, but I am tirelessly optimistic. Um, And I do know that literal bringing color is a way that's um, uh, just feels needed here. Vibrancy and vitality feel needed here. So let me bring that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let me. I'll just read you. If this, this is a good time to, yeah, this is a perfect time. Yeah. Okay, great. This so is this a great is time, a and I just have to let you know, Valentine is obsessed with this. He's a massive Aww. fan. So, thank you I for creating that. this. Of course, because yeah. he's like a little Sherpa for the divine himself. <laughs> it's true. And Valentine, I I will say too, uh, when we see each other he and I always bond over superheroes. And that's ah. actually how I learned how to draw. Like I wasn't a huge comic book fan, but I was a huge comic book character fan. You know, Spider-Man was also my original favorite, which I think was his as well. I know he's gone into the Black Panther days. We all kind of go through our fades, but Spider-Man was the OG, I think, with Valentine, correct? It's true. Very correct. Yeah. He, he'll always be his number one. So, so same with, same with me. So I learned how to draw by drawing comic book characters. And, uh, anytime I see Valentine, we do that, but I think there's something about the superhero and the archetype of what they represent that, uh, we're connected to. Okay. So this this is a little keepers of color. Um, this will give, this will set the stage for what this, what this journey is. This is a tale that reminds other tales. It is their time to be told. Once inside a time, the world within was full of color and light. 
imagination and creativity were the laws and loves of the land, held in balance from all directions by the great mystery. The great mystery has a million names, all of which point to the loving, luminous source of life that dwells inside every atom and everything. It's the benevolent force that pumps blood through our body, guides rivers to the ocean, spins the planets in orbit, and turns winters to spring. Stretching from one corner of the world within to the farthest reaches of the world as we know it, span the rainbow of remembrance. The rainbow was a brilliant and beautiful bridge that connected heavens to the earth and the eternal to the present. It was a resplendent reminder of the magic that could be found not in some faraway land or some enlightened mountaintop, but here and now in this breathtakingly majestic world. All creatures who dwell beneath this colorful curve believed in the power of possibility. It was a place where dreams mattered, and every being was guided along their one-of-a-kind journey to live out a uniquely magnificent purpose. To ensure the rainbow of remembrance shone morning, noon, and night, the wisest of sages throughout the kingdom were employed to safeguard the spectrum. Each was assigned a hue in the rainbow, conveyed to a virtue, conveyed a virtue to live by, and offered a talisman for the taking. Collectively, these kind and courageous custodians were called the keepers of color. The keepers were a festive, celebratory bunch entrusted to, to color in everything under the sun. From bird wings to coral reefs, the nuances of nature were all painted in praise and play. Wherever there was color, there was life. But as is true with guardians of anything sacred, the keepers of color would all soon be tested. One day, and no one quite knew how or why, and though it may be denied or looked at the other way, it started to happen. Dreams began disappearing. Like a thief in the night, something invisible and unseen snuck in, and soon the world within became subdued, covered in a hazy, nebulous fog of forgetfulness. The world was in a crisis of color. A mysterious shadow formed like a sedating mist atop the land. It tore families apart, estranged neighbors, and isolated nations. Distraction and devastation ran free, while chaos and suffering grew into merciless tyrants. Something needed to change, but something was unwilling to. Thankfully, even amid the surrounding gloom, there was a glimmer, a small yet immensely powerful seed of hope. Within this seed, the destiny of the world and the promise of its soul rested. The keepers sent out calls, calls for help across all the kingdoms, hoping that someone, anyone, would answer. Their calls beckoned to those who would break out of their protective shells of comfort and conformity, inviting each being to sprout toward a new life and push beyond the all-encompassing darkness into the light of another reality. Little did they know that help would arrive from the most reluctant and unsuspecting of heroes. Dot, dot, dot. Oh my gosh. I just love, there's so many times when you were reading that there is like bells going off in my mind, just being like, truth, truth, truth. And um, just, yeah, just so much truth there and loved it. So beautiful on the edge of my seat as well. And also how you, you know, how we started this conversation kind of saying the, the old adage, like the picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And I just love the pictures that you paint with your words. You are really an artist of the words as well. Cause I just had so much color and vision when you were, my mind was illustrating those words and it was beautiful. So thank you for that. I love that on the, on the cover of my book. Um, so it's called The Keepers of Color, A Creative Hero's Journey into the World Within by John Morrow, written and illustrated with you. So you're the, the you are co-author and co-illustrator of this book. It's a it's a coloring book, it's an activity book, it's a it's like a a living dream, like a, a daydream um into reality uh guide. 
I'm obsessed with this. I'm going to get like three copies and put them strategically around my house. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Hey, John, do you have two more books on the go right now in the works? I do. I do. I do. So, Oh, tell um, us about them. I'll tell them about them. One now, one's called um, Small Voice, Be Brave. And so my dad passed away about a year and a half ago and I went back to Vermont where I'm from and it was... I just connected to my childhood, you know, all the memories going through the basement and the photos and the clearing and then just being in the homeland. And this little story came up about a chickadee. Do you guys know what a chickadee is? Yeah. A little birdie. Yeah, it's a little bird. Um, I think that, I think they're mostly on the East Coast, uh, but uh, they're they're small birds, but they're known for like their ferocity. They have like a Napoleon syndrome where they're like, they'll, <laughs> they'll like, they'll fend off other much larger birds. And uh, so it's about a family of chickadees that live on this... Um, rolling uh, farmland on a farm. And there's a long um, dirt road or driveway that sort of uh, runs through the farm. And so on one side, a small voice, small voice is a metaphor for intuition, his intuition, his own small voice. So he lives with his parents and they have their birdhouse, their bird bath and their uh, bird feeder. So they're really kind of like set up by the system. Basically they're right by the actual like human's house. And on the other side of that, that winding dirt road, there's rolling meadows and a pond and food for all four seasons and a big barn. And on top of that barn is one of those fake owls that they have meant to scare away birds and pests. And so small voices, parents won't let him cross the road, but his intuition is like, something's not right. Like something is off here. Like that, that owl isn't real. And so, uh, the story takes place on all four seasons in the winter, um, a clumsy, hungry squirrel comes and knocks over their bird feeder. So all their food for the long, cold winter is, is gone. And so finally, he's, his um, small voice is like, I'm going to go just call this owl's bluff. And he goes on this on this little journey to get up and finds that it's sort of just a plastic owl. And is like, come on, guys. Like, there's plenty there's plenty of food over here. We've got a whole new life. And so everyone sort of joins. And the, the, the power of... Uh, of standing up to your fears, listening to your voice, and then seeing a whole new world when you're willing to be brave. So it's called Small Voice, Be Brave. Oh, love that. Absolutely love that. And we all need that extra push to listen to our small voice, you know, because our small voice is going to be pushing all of us to do things that society, our family, our the world might not want us to do, but that is our destiny. So I was about fantastic. to say, if I could do any, if I could give my children the greatest gift, it would be to really understand and to hear their intuition and to help that be the guiding force in their life. I think that as adults, you know, I, I see people out of touch with their intuition and it just creates this <laughs> downward spiral um, in totally. their life. I mean, you know? that's, that's one of the themes in our book, Amber, as well. That's right. Intuition, intuition and recognizing that voice and following it and being brave enough to to trust it can really, you know, weave an incredible life. So that's smart to get that in there, you and know, think, especially to, to kitties. Yeah. And I think that there's such a big cultural conversation right now about sovereignty. And I think that's a way to begin to access it, you know, begin to listen to that unique inner voice within each of us to sort of have that be what we're governed by, you know? And it, it always, for me, it always seems, I think you can kind of litmus test it when it's not causing harm, when it's, you know, magnanimous and helping others, you know that it's doing good. Yeah. Yeah. When it has that that high vibration, you know, of love underlying in it. I completely agree. John, 
fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all this amazingness with us. I am so inspired to read nothing other but activated material to my son and my baby. Um, Can you please tell us where our audience can follow you, find you, get a commission piece from you, find your books? We'll link that to the show notes, but tell us where we can all get hold of you. Wonderful. Thank you. So uh, you can find me at johnmorrow.com. So it's J-O-N-M-A-R-R-O. And it's the same. I'm mostly on Instagram more than Twitter, but both of my handles are at John Morrow, J-O-N-M-A-R-R-O. And I've also just started a production studio slash creative agency, which will house all my books and all my creations, which is called Worlds Within. So worldswithin.com. Oh, beautiful. What an incredibly well-suited title. (laughs) Excellent. So thank you, John, so much for being with us. Wow. You've completely shook up my entire perspective on the power of illustration and words and storytelling. So profound. And you're doing such a service to the children of this world and the adults. So thank you for everything you do, John. Really remarkable. An honor. Yay. And we offer an invitation to our guests at the end of every episode. And in light of today's topic, I would love whoever is listening to this to ask themselves what story they are sharing with the world. Is it one that inspires and empowers others to be the very best version of themselves and contributes to positive change? If not, then maybe today's the day to rewrite your story. Jenna, do you have any invitations you want to throw out there? Well, the invitation that comes to mind to me is um, how can you strengthen your relationship with the muse, the divine mysteries, the world within, um, that ocean meeting upon our ocean of reality, and step into that a little bit more and find a little more fulfillment there? Beautiful. John, how about it? Do you have any invitations to chuck out there? I would just say... Yeah, my invitation is to start noticing color everywhere you see it. Mm, ooh, I love that. I love your explanation on color and how you see that in your world. So there's one for everyone there. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a comment and we'd love to hear your ideas on storytelling and any other topics you're interested in hearing about. We read everything in our comments section on our website and please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We read every comment there and are so grateful for your support. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us and for being part of Saving the world through storytelling. Thanks so much.